Um, hey, man, welcome to my my yard. Your yard. Thank yeah. you, Zane. Nice to be here. Um, Leland, we have been friends for, if that's what we want to call it. A fortnight, at least. Probably 15 years. It's been a while. Uh, this is a, a G&T that um, is made with kupu gin. Kupu oh. gin is made on the island of Maui in Hawaii, and it's the best gin ever. The views and views of the guests of this show are not necessarily the views of Kupu Spirits. Okay, there we go. Well, thank you for giving me a quart of uh, gin and tonic. I, I want you liquored up because I know what it takes to loosen you up. There goes six months of sobriety. Welcome. Oh, wow. That's really good. It is good. It's tasty and refreshing. Perfect for a summer evening. <laughs> Kupu gin. I love it. <laughs> Um, here. I'm sorry, what were we talking about? I'll, I'll do it like this. Kupu Jin. Wow. That's great Kupu Jin. The taste great. is in the name. <laughs> What's that? What is that from? Something. I don't know. Um, I okay. used to be a copywriter. Look, we've been friends for a long time, but I don't think people really care about our friendship. We hardly care about we, our friendship. <laughs> we, we barely do anything to maintain our friendship. <laughs> Um, in our defense, though, you do live in Los Angeles. You live probably nine miles from me, and that is easily an hour away. I believe it's about 11. 11 miles? And how long did it take you to get here? <clears throat> probably two and a half hours. <laughs> well, I didn't know you were walking. It's a 405 freeway <laughs> at rush hour. What do you expect? Exactly. Um, so, I drove on the shoulder, mostly. Um... You know how intrigued I am about your days Body. at the mansion. And I actually had you on a podcast before the pandemic. And it was an audio version. And I was going to release it, but I was like, ah, let me get him back and let's kind of rekindle that Let's get that, that handsome story. man on camera. Yeah, let's, this guy, yeah. He has a, wasting a perfect he has a image. a voice here. for camera. <laughs> um and so you were uh, at the Playboy Munch Mansion for, I'll do that cleanly. You were at the Playboy Mansion from what years? I worked as a butler at the Playboy Mansion during its heyday. I was there from about 1978 to 1983 or so. Okay. And what were your responsibilities? Well, <clears throat> uh, answer the door, of course. Um, basically like a waiter, bartender on call. We had There was a butler's pantry that the butlers hung out in. And Hef and his guests would call the pantry and order whatever they wanted. If they wanted a drink or a bowl of fruit or a plate of spaghetti. That or photo you sent, there was a photo of you in that in that butler's pantry. pantry. Yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah, that was uh, the pantry where we hung out. And, and we had, we the, the cooks made anything hot and the butlers made anything cold, like salads, ice cream sundaes, fruit bowls, drinks, that sort of stuff. And, you know, if a girl wanted a towel out by the pool or a bikini because she wanted to go in the jacuzzi. There were, like, phones, like physical phones everywhere? Yeah, phones they, all they over the house. They just press a button yeah, and get, yeah. okay, got it. And out by the pool and in the everywhere. grotto? Yep, yep. Um, and our job was basically to provide the guests with, with, with whatever they required or asked for. Now, that is interesting, the way you phrase that. Because my Thank question you. to you is this, Leland. Did you ever cross the line? It's hard to think of a line that I didn't cross as a butler, Zane. I was there. I was there for five years. I started out as a callow young lad. 
Yeah, how, how old were you? I was, I just turned 21. Oh, wow. How did you get a job as a butler at the Playboy Mansion at 21 years old? Well, I'll tell you, Zane. Yeah. I was pumping gas at the time, pumping gas in Torrance. I think I sent you a picture of me. At your typewriter. Typewriter. I would bring my portable typewriter to work and sit in the gas station office and write screenplays between the ding, ding, the cars. Uh Uh-huh, when they drive over that air hose. I had come from Oregon, and I moved to L.A. to get into films. And I thought the best way to get into filmmaking was as a director, as as a screenwriter. So I started writing screenplays. Before I moved to California, I was, as a young man, I was a fan of Playboy magazine, as most young men were at the time. the articles. Yeah, the interviews. The interviews. (laughs) And... And there was one issue of the magazine that had a feature on the Playboy Mansion West. It was this lavish photo spread of the mansion, and it showed this castle-like structure and the grotto and the swimming pool and celebrities and naked women everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed like heaven on earth to me, as it would to any young guy. And and when I came to L.A., I went to look for the mansion based on clues from the article. Okay. I knew it was... Uh, right off a of sunset, and I knew it bordered the LA Country Club. Got it. So is, I that, drove, is that called Homey, Homey Hills? Hills? Okay. So I drive around Homey Hills looking for what I was hoped was a Playboy Mansion, and I found it. I could see the crenellated walls up beyond the trees and the fancy gate and stuff, and I thought that's the Playboy mm-hmm. Mansion. And uh, that became sort of part of my personal legend. I would bring friends there and say, that's the Playboy Mansion. Got it. And I said, can you imagine just if you could get over those walls, yeah. you know? Because I bought into the fantasy of the article that it was full of naked women and celebrities all the time. Yeah. And one day I was showing somebody the place, and we're, uh, we were at the back gate, and a guy about my age came strolling up the driveway, the back driveway, to the gate and waved at the security camera and said, uh, Dave Butler. And the gates opened, and he walked up the driveway to the house. And I was... Um, thunderstruck because I hadn't been clever enough to imagine there was such a thing as working at the Playboy Mansion. Mm -hmm. And I thought, holy crap, how do you get a job as a butler at the Playboy Mansion? Is it a national lottery? You know, do they do some sort of nationwide search for the coolest guys? How do you qualify for that? And again, that became just part of something that I talked about regularly with friends. Like, oh man, what a job that would be. As I said, I was working at a gas station at the time, and one day one of the other gas station attendants came in and said, hey, my girlfriend works at a restaurant, and one of her regular customers is a bartender at the Playboy Mansion. And I said, you've got to get me a number. And eventually uh, I got the phone number for the house manager, and I called the manager of the Playboy Mansion house and said, I was interested in working as a bartender. Luckily, I had just take just gone to bartending school, a two-week bartending course, mm-hmm. because I was a, turning 21, and I wanted to do something besides pump gas. So I called the guy and lied and said, "Oh yeah, I'm a bartender. Got all kinds of experience." Yeah. And he called me for an interview. Called me up for an interview. Wow. And he said, "It's at uh, 10236." I said, "I know where it is." <laughs> <laughs> and I drove up there from Torrance one day, and the gates opened, and I walked up that driveway, and I came to the house office, and I had an interview with them. And he said, "Well, we don't have anything, but we often hire need extra help for parties yeah. and stuff." And he took my name, and within a week or two, he called me and asked if I would work a Sunday afternoon party fundraiser for then Governor Jerry Brown to give you an idea how long ago it was. And next thing I knew, I was, you know, walking up the driveway to work at the Playboy Mansion. Now, my first day there, my first Sunday afternoon, it was a party out on the lawn. It was a fundraiser, so there wasn't anything, you know, terribly racy happening. 
and I was just working at the bar. But what was interesting to me was, and I saw several celebrities, but the bartender that I was working with was this guy named Terry, and he was a very uh, flamboyant gay guy. And growing up in Oregon, I had never met or never knowingly met a gay person mm-hmm. before. And he and, and I thought he was hilarious. And what was notable about it is that he had no regard for the for the station of the place or the celebrities. And he was making fun of everything and mm-hmm. kind of being very wry about it. And it really put me at ease. I thought, I don't have to be in awe of all this. Right. They're just people. Right. And it's just a situation. So um, he immediately made me more comfortable about it. And at the end of the shift, they asked if I wanted to work again. And I said, yeah. And within a week or so, I was put on regular nights on weekends, working the night shift. And after just two or three weeks, somebody quit. And, and I was working as a gas station attendant during the day, five days a week. Mm-hmm. And then Friday night, I'd drive up to Homby Hills and work as a butler all night long. And then all night Saturday, and then sleep in Sunday and go back to work as a gas station attendant on Monday. This, now, just bringing this back to the beginning of the conversation. Was the traffic as bad doing that commute? Because it's kind of the same thing you no, just did now. No, no, no. It just wasn't bad that time? <clears throat> no. You, this In 1980, the population of Los Angeles was roughly half what it is now. Mm-hmm. That means half as many cars on the freeway. Right. Or less. So tr- bad traffic back then was nothing like it is now. Right. Wasn't so it wasn't any big ago. deal. Yeah. So and my, my shift started at 10 o'clock at night, so I'd head wow. up at 9 o'clock, so there was no traffic at 9 o'clock. 10 until night. when? Until 6.30 in the morning. Okay. Then at 6.30 in the morning, there wasn't any traffic either, so I didn't have to deal with that. How old was Hef at that time? Hef was in his early 50s, I believe. Okay. And within of just after a few weeks of doing that, I came was brought on full-time because it was hard to find people to work the night shift, and I, it was cool with me. Did you always do the night shift? Yeah, so for the next five years, I worked the night shift, which was terrific for me because it was the time when Hef and his guests were at their most unguarded and frolicsome, mm-hmm, basically. Mm-hmm. During the day, you know, Hef slept in until late afternoon, so the house was basically dead during wow. the day. And then he, he worked. He slept in until afternoon? Yeah, he never went to bed till like 2, 3, 4 in the morning. Uh-huh. And so there's no fun working during the day. They would have business meetings there and stuff, and, and um, it was just more like a hotel during the day. But at 10 o'clock at night, it was when things got fun, and that's when I was here. What did he... Did he party? What did he do? No, no, I, I, I mean, because... Did Hef party? Well... Do you know who we're talking about? No, I, I, I know, but... He was okay, a, I, when I met him, it was uh, probably He was a about, senior citizen. He was, and and I knew girls that, that, that went there and stuff like that, and he was just like, he went to bed early, and he just liked to have friends over to play games. So So back then, he was like... Staying up late, to, he was partying a lot. I'll give you a routine. I'll give you a regular yeah, night. Yeah, please. <clears throat> regular night, except for the movie nights when he had first run movies up there, and then hun- uh, 70, 80 people would show up and watch a movie uh, and have a buffet dinner. On regular weeknight, Hef got up sometime in the afternoon. I don't know because I wasn't there in the afternoon, and he would work. Uh, still pretending to be editor of the magazine, basically selecting the playmates and going through the cartoons and just going through the the magazine and making so his approvals like and stuff. maybe like work for three hours? Yeah, I guess. Okay. I don't know. Like I said, I wasn't really there for that. And then he would kick off and he would play games with his friends. Mm-hmm. He had several male friends. Harry Reams, the porn star. Lance Rensel, the disgraced... Uh, football player but that's what i mean he was so even back then he's he loved games that's all he loved but okay 
games and sex. So for <laughs> hours every night, he would play Monopoly three or four nights a week or backgammon with the same guys. Mm -hmm. Play fucking Monopoly for several hours in the library. And as the girls sat around as decoration. Right. You know, and, and then they would all go out to the game house and we would play pinball and Space Invaders and Pac-Man, stuff like that for hours. And then his friends would peel off and go home and half would take a couple of girls upstairs and go to bed, have sex on whatever drugs or not Yeah, for a couple of hours. And then he would have dinner at around 2, 3 in the morning, serve him dinner. See, it's and funny. He, and, he, and he would yeah. watch... TV shows that, that he had taped for him. Okay. Most things like Macmillan and Wife and Columbo, the classic old yeah. detective things like that, for several hours until he went to sleep. That's interesting. Okay. And that was night after night, year after year, that was his routine. I just, for some reason, and maybe I'm naive, I thought he was just kind of square. Well, that sounds fairly square to me, <laughs> playing Monopoly well, every fucking it night. It is, but, that, but it, it is. <laughs> he it's, never went anywhere. Anytime Hef left the house, it was like a really big deal. It's yeah, like but, but, then, but then there's also, it's like there's board games with his, with his bros, and then they leave, and then it's girls and yeah. drugs and sex. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, you know, I guess it's just whatever. Well, I don't know of anyone who is was as obsessed with sex as Hefner. Yeah. And remained that way, you know? I mean, there are rock stars, Beatles, whoever, who went through their period of having groupies and yeah. having sex every night for a couple of years, but they eventually settle down and get married and, you know, they get tired of that or outgrow that. Hef never did. He, was he kind of a, a gentleman, though? Or was he... A no. gentleman? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Everybody liked him. He was immensely likable. Not to me. I, I never cared for the guy because he never... Um, Never called me by my name once in five years. Never talked to me as another human being, just treated me as a servant. Mm -hmm. He must have learned somewhere along the way that it was cool to be uncool to your servants, that, that servants were not to be spoken to right. because he just never did. It could, I could, have been, could have been a situation where he was nice to them and then they took advantage of that and he's just like, all right, I'm not doing this. I mean, because the lifestyle that he lived when you were there is probably one he had since he was, what, late 20s, early 30s? Yeah. Yeah, but I, but I could I tell that, like he, that. Was, he was he was a very smart guy, very intelligent, well read and well spoken, uh, generous to a fault with his friends, personable, a gentleman to the ladies. So there, there wasn't anything to dislike about him. All this, all the the, the you know this A and E program that, that talked about what a fiend he was and how horrible he was doesn't really rhyme with anything that I knew or saw. Yeah, I I am still friends with the great number of the playmates from that era. And I've seen them quite recently. And with the exception of one or two, almost all of them still have fond feelings for Hef and for their experience with Playboy. Mm -hmm. So it was a different era, you know. It wasn't anything such as a Me Too movement. And men and women had slightly different roles. And when you're, when you're chosen as a playmate, that's a pretty big deal because there's only 12 playmates a year, you okay. know. So that's a pretty selective thing. And you're treated like a princess. You know, you're brought to L.A. and 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 uh, you know you're given beautiful clothes and made up to perfection and shot. They they, they get rooms there. How do they stay there? Yeah, yeah. Um, most of the girls who stay at the mansion were people were girls that had come from Des Moines or Tampa or Cedar Falls or wherever, and 
were in town to do their shoots, so they would stay at the mansion oh, okay. while they were in town Got to it. do their shoot. A lot of them moved out here because they had met some producer that was promising them the world, yeah. or they came out and got a taste of it and decided they wanted to live in L.A. and mm-hmm. try their hand at acting or at least modeling, and half would let them stay at the mansion. So some, some of the playmates ended up staying there for a year or two. Oh, wow. Okay. How many and, bedrooms were there? Seven in the main house and then four out of the guest house. Okay. So there was typically four or five girls staying there at a time. Hef's best friend, this rest, uh, ex-restaurateur named John Dante, lived there full-time the whole time I was there. James Kahn lived there for a year or so. Oh, Tony wow. Tony Curtis lived when you there were for there? quite a while. I was, there, yeah. was he nice? Jimmy Kahn, of all the celebrities that I met there, James Kahn was about the nicest. Oh, He wow. was a cool guy. That's good to hear. A very good guy. Yeah. Everybody liked Jimmy. He was really. He eventually started doing freebase. After his sister died, he went down a drug hole and became more of a kind of a dick. But wow. But for the most part, he was a super cool guy. Um, Belushi. What? Belushi, Belushi and Aykroyd were invited up um, after Hef appeared on Saturday Night Live. Okay. And they were in town, and they were invited up to the mansion. Belushi impishly or defiantly brought Durf Scratch and Lee Ving up. They were members of the punk band Fear. Okay. Hardcore punk band. And they so they came up, and they, they were completely out of place there. But typically, Belushi and Aykroyd gravitated to the pantry because the pantry was a, was a popular hideout for people that didn't want to ha- hang out with Hef and his right. Hollywood cronies. And the girls, the girls were always hanging out in the pantry too. Yeah. Hef's social secretaries were always coming into the pantry and chasing the girls out of there because they gravitated to us fun young guys, yeah. not the 50-year-old, 60-year-old producers right. and hangers-on and other Hollywood wannabes you know, that came up to the mansion. So it was a popular hangout, and and for certain celebrities like Aykroyd and Belushi, you know, they came and hung out at the in the pantry with us, which was great fun, great fun for us. I feel like you paused after I mentioned his name, like you didn't want to say something. No, I have a whole Belushi story. Oh, <clears throat> which I will now tell you. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> uh, one night, Belushi was out there by himself, and he needed a ride to a recording studio. In Santa Monica, and and I was tasked, or I seized the opportunity to be the one to give him a ride. And 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 Belushi was a good guy. I sent you a picture of yeah. me and Belushi. He was a fun guy, and he he was a, he was a good hang and a regular guy. Um, and he asked me to steal him a bottle of Crown Royal. And we went out to the car, and I drove him to his his uh, destination. On the way, he we passed an apartment building that's now a hotel, a condo building that's now a hotel on Wilshire and Comstock. And he said, that's where Freddie Prinze killed himself. I said, okay. And which he thought was kind of notable and Mm -hmm. sad. And the whole drive there, he was lamenting to me how he was having troubles with his wife. Judy was going to leave him because he was having sex with all these girls. And he said, I know these girls don't, I know I'm ugly. I know these girls are just fucking me because I'm a celebrity. You know, and um, he was really bummed out. And I was trying to say, no, John, you're a good-looking guy. What are you talking about? (laughs) You got your charms. And he told me about Doug Kenny. Doug Kenny was a writer for National Lampoon, who then wrote Animal House and um, and other things, who not long prior to that had died by falling or jumping off of a cliff in Hawaii. 
And Belushi knew Kenny from the National Lampoon days, and he, Belushi told me that he warned Kenny not to move to L.A. He said, don't move to L.A., man, it's going to kill you. And, you know, Kenny ended up dead. And this was just months before Belushi himself died. Anyway, I drove him to the recording studio in Santa Monica, and, we, and I pulled over, and I said, well, have fun. He said, no, man, c- come on, what are you doing? Hang. And I thought, well, I, I could get fired. i got to go back to the mansion, but I can't turn John Belushi down. Yeah. So I parked, and I went inside with him, thinking, well, I don't know what's going to happen tonight, but I'm buds with John Belushi now, yeah. as a lot of people probably had a similar experience. Mm-hmm. So we walked in the studio, and I remember walking down the hallway and looking at all the gold records and stuff, and we're walking back to the recording area. Me and John, my bud John, we get there, and there's like four or five guys standing around waiting for him, and he, they they greeted him and he waved at them and I was standing there waiting for him to introduce me and wondering how the night was going to go and I realized that he had basically forgotten about me like he's moved on his focus had changed next shiny object yeah Yeah. so I stood there for a few awkward moments I said okay well yeah I guess I'll go (laughs) so that was that was the last time I saw him oh wow how how long after that like I said I don't remember exactly but it was just a few months before he died oh okay sad yeah um why did you leave got fired you did yeah congratulations i thought Thank you left you. in your own accord no i should have and i got fired largely because i wanted to leave but it was hard for me to um leave the nest so to speak you know i thought well i can't be stay here forever but I'm at the Playboy Mansion, you know. Every night was a party, and I was meeting all these celebrities. And in a way, it, it put my career on hold, my screenwriting career on hold, because I felt it, it allowed me to feel in a way like I'd already arrived. Yeah. I was already rubbing elbows yeah. with all these stars. I became friends with Robert Town, for example, who was who wrote Chinatown and, among other things, is one of the best screenwriters ever and one of the only screenwriters that became known by their name. And um, but eventually I started writing again. And I have a screenplay that I wrote at the time that James Kahn said, Best Wishes, Leland. He wrote on the cover of it. And, and oh, not one of your screenplays? One that I was writing, yeah. Okay, I, got told, it. I told him I was writing a script, and he oh. signed, his, signed it for me. But, um, Did you I, ever try to, like, give it to anybody? No. Like, I, no. Uh-uh. The line to cross, basically? I, I didn't feel, I was new at it and mm-hmm. I was young. I didn't feel like I was good enough to, I mean, these were the best people in the business, you yeah. know. It was like, I'm not going to hand my script to Warren Beatty. Maybe if it was some nobody producer or mm-hmm. something, you know. But but my my buddy, my sort of partner in crime that I'd worked at nights on night shift with for a couple of years, went on to become Hess Valet and worked during the day. And so I lost my sort of my buddy and I worked with a series of other butlers who weren't nearly as um, as uh, party minded as I was Mm -hmm. and it became less fun for me and also I I slowly became aware of the line between me and the other people and and the guests this is the problem with doing it in my front yard but it's fine (laughs) the the audio does it does it does it record do you hear it I think it's kind of fun I mean what's interesting is I is is that when you when you look at this you feel, it, I think it looks like you're out in the mountains or something, right? But in the, the actuality is you, you are so much in the middle of Los <laughs> Angeles, it's crazy. I mean, when I, when, when I bought this house, you probably saw it early, early on, there was a horseshoe driveway. Yeah. And there was no protection from the, yeah. from the front. 
and there's a stop sign here that people run regularly and it just it's one of those things that just boils my blood and it shouldn't and I wish it didn't but it is what it is and so that's one of the reasons also just for security I, I put this gate and then leveled out this and put you know gated the front and you know whatever that's so that's awesome. That's um, awesome can I offer you some uh, s'mores s'mores yeah yeah we love s'mores you can but to complete my thought and say yeah <clears throat> I do tangents throw you off no, I love tangents. I was born. You are a tangent. On tangents, but anyway, um, as the years went on, I became more and more aware that I wasn't one of the guests. Right. I'd be hanging out with several playmates and a couple of filmmakers or actors or whatever. We'd be after half went to bed, we'd be hanging out, smoking a joint, chatting, and I felt like one of them and I was accepted yeah. until someone needed a drink. Then I was the one that had to get up and go to the pantry and yeah. get drinks for everybody. And and I realized that I wasn't gonna get anywhere by being a butler. So so I was getting more and more um, brazen in in my misbehavior. Oh, kind of like asking for it? Yeah, exactly. Okay. I mean, jeez, now you want me to kick you out of here. I'm good, I'm good. Uh, for example, there was a security guard who I disliked because he was a he was a fat, lazy pig. And at night, there was at a night on the night shift, there were two butlers, two security guards, and a cook, and that was it. Okay. And after Hefner went to bed, the house was ours. So How I, many butlers? I'm sorry, just one butler? Two butlers. Okay, I got it. So me and the other butler would hang out in the living room or the dining room, which is right next to the pantry, light a fire, order up some burgers or steaks, and just hang out in the pantry all night. Or I mean, in the living room, girls would drift up. Excuse me, the dining room. So you're just room. basically on call. Yeah. So if something needs to be done, that's fine. But yeah, there's no harm. But in after Hef went to bed, most of the guests went home, and there's the house was empty. It was basically ours. And, and did he ever come down like unannounced? Yes. Oh. <laughs> Rarely, but we could hear his door open, so we would, we oh would my scatter. God. That's amazing. But girls would come up once they knew Hef was in bed. The girls that we liked would come up from the guest room and, and hang out with us in the dining room. Um, anyway, there was a security guard that I thought was didn't deserve the job, and he was just kind of an oaf, and he fell asleep a lot. And I thought, you're here to fucking guard us, and you're fucking sleeping on the yeah. floor behind the table in the dining room. So I would mess with them. I'd go down to the to the wall and jiggle the motion sensor wires, so it'd show up on their map, and he'd get a call. It might go down to sector four. Or there's you know, and do stuff like that just to mess with them. When he'd fall asleep, I'd steal his gun and hide it. Oh my god! So he'd wake oh. up and go, God damn it, Leland, where's my gun? Go, oh my god! He couldn't report me, of course, because you know. Because I, I fell asleep. Because oh, he, he, he lost his gun. That's amazing. Okay. So he and another security guard ally of his just sort of started keeping a close eye on me. And one night they noticed that I was in the Dodge van room with the playmate for like four hours. What did you just say? The Dodge van room? Yeah, there's a van. Out, there's a room out by the um, out, 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 out in the guest game house. They called the Dodge van room because it had carpeted floors and carpeted walls oh, and mirrors wow. and stuff it looked like a really cheesy dodge van was it like a sex room yeah that was that was the idea but half would never have sex there no but he built things so that his friends could have sex there? yeah there were two rooms a red the red room and the blue room that were off the game room that were designed basically for 
liaisons. They had mirrored ceilings and mirrored walls. And were there like condoms carpeting. and stuff in jars out and about, or not no, like a thing? No, con- no condoms. I mean, you could order them from the man. We had them in the pantry. Uh, so, so anyway, yeah. yeah. So they eventually busted me for that. For, for what? For being behind closed doors with the playmate oh, for three it. or four hours. Oh, in the do- in the dodge room, the dodge yeah. man room. Got it. Got it. And so they catch you in the act, or did they? Well, they didn't know what we were doing in there, but they knew they had. There was two doors to the room, and they stationed guard on the outside just to see how long I was in there with this playmate. Miss November. Miss November. Uh, what year? Uh, <laughs> do you know? Uh, well, I know her name, but I'm not going to go into no, that. No, that's fine. <laughs> Sometime in the early 80s. Roger eh? that. Could be one of three. <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, yeah. Sorry. It was, it was uh, yeah, but I was ready to go. I, and I'll tell you, it's an interesting story how I came to be, how I got my notice that I was out of there. Oh, oh so, it, so it didn't come that day? Uh, not that night. They didn't nice. bust me when I came out of there. I thought I was fine. The next day... I, I don't think I worked the next day, but basically how it went down is I had become friends with this guy, one of the guests at the Playboy Mansion, who was a young Tyro. He had started a Tyro. Tyro. He had started a. I don't. I'm sorry. I don't know that word. You're the writer. I just a go getter. Got it. He he had started. Or was part of the startup of a shampoo company, and he sold it for a couple million dollars. And so he was a guy not much older than me who was a millionaire. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to be a screenwriter, and he knew I was a screenwriter. And he, he had a house your, up. He had can a you house. pull your micro, microphone in front of you again? You just pull it around. I want to hear your story. Hello. No, you're talking in the front of it, not on the top of it. Oh, hello. Hello. Here we go. I am unfamiliar with the ways of your people. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this guy uh, said, hey, we should write something together, man. Uh, and, okay. you know, come up to the house on, you know, on Thursday night or whatever. And he was, had a house up in the Hollywood Good Hills. Talk. Okay. So I went up there thinking, okay. Um, and he, went, this playmate was staying with him at the time. A very beautiful playmate. And. You don't have to say the month, but do you know the month? In her case, I don't know okay. the month. And and I came to his house, and he said, well, we're going to talk about a story, cook up a story to write together. And he said, well, before we do, I thought we should watch a good movie. And he lit up a joint and started chopping out lines of cocaine. Wow. And we watched Under the Rainbow with Chevy Chase about the munchkins and the making of Wizard of Oz. I don't know that. Have you seen it before? It, no one's seen it. It's a horrible, horrible movie. You haven't seen it, right? I'm intrigued. I mean, is it horrible enough to, like, want to go watch it? It's lame. Really? Under the Rainbow. It's about what? Chevy Chase. It's about the the munchkins going wild during the making of Under the Rainbow. Uh, Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz. So I'm sitting there coked up watching this movie with this guy going, I can't write with this guy. If he thinks this is a good movie, you know. Mm, oh, I got you. Meanwhile, the playmate was crying. She was coming in and out of her bedroom. She was distraught over something and was crying. And, uh, hi, Leland. Go back to her room crying. Oh, because she knew you from the mansion. Yeah, of course. So the guy and I finished watching the movie, and he said, well, I'm out of blow. I'm going to go to bed. I don't have any more Coke. I said, okay, well, 
we'll talk. And I was starting to go, and the playmate came out of her room and said, um, don't go. Wow. I said, okay. She was lonely. And, and so I hung out with her, and she said, let me go get some more Coke. So she went upstairs oh. to the guy's bedroom to get some more Coke. You know, she brought down a couple of grams. And I sort of felt badly for the guy because she gave lie to his statement that he was out of Coke. Right, and, right. And so I stayed up for several hours with this playmate, and, and I was coked up to the gills, and I wasn't in any condition to drive home. So I went out on the patio up in the Hollywood Hills, and I jumped in the swimming pool naked, and I swam back and forth and back and forth trying to burn off this energy and, in a way, just trying to cleanse myself. Yeah. Because I didn't feel good about the sex we just had. Okay. You know, that was drug-fueled, and she was crying, and, no, you know, it wasn't a, nothing I was going to write home to mom about. And I got out of the pool, and I was just standing there looking out and watching the sun come up over L.A., thinking I had this really profound feeling of, what an empty experience the whole thing was. Yeah. So is this all there is? No, I just slept with the playmate, just did a bunch of drugs, I'm up in the Hollywood Hills. It just all seemed tawdry and horrible to me. And I finally went home and I got home, there was a message on my machine from the my house manager saying, you're fired. Um, was the expectation that, again, this is my naivete at 50 years old, was the expectation that that you were not having sex with anyone and that was yeah. explicitly against the rules? Absolutely. Okay. In a house designed No fraternizing with the girls. They weren't even supposed to come into the pantry and talk to mm. us. But, of course... Yeah. So it's interesting to think about the fact that you were in that pool and to you it was another random moment, yet it turned into a moment that you are um, thinking about decades later as a significant turning point but to you it was a moment that you thought you were going to just put out of your memory probably yeah i suppose so although it had the 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 weight of an epiphany you okay. know i really felt in that moment like this there's something wrong here but if you didn't get fired maybe it wouldn't have had the impact probably not Although I would have gotten fired pretty soon after that anyway, because I was really asking for on it. a self-destructive yeah. train. Luckily, my next job after that was working as a personal assistant to Robert Town, who was my hero. Oh, If I could have picked anyone in the world to work with, it would have been Coppola or Kubrick. Did you get that because of... Because I knew him at the Playboy Mansion. Got it. That's another whole story. That would be the next podcast. Okay. okay. Um, so... Sorry, composing my thought for a So my, my friend and I, my butler friend and I, who were buddies there for several years, we, we, were, uh, we became great friends. We remained great friends. I wasn't taking full advantage of my position there until my friend Mark showed up. Okay. And together we formed this kind of, I don't know. Oh, I'm sorry. He's another butler. Yeah, he's another butler. And it, you, you got a partner in crime. Yeah. Yeah. We just hit it off the way you and I did in a way. And like, we're like-minded and we were different sides of a coin. We appreciated different things about each other and just uh, quickly realized that we should be taken advantage of this situation. Yeah. Which oh, we did. so you were a good boy. You were there for how, five years? Five years, yeah. And, for and the how first many year years? To, for the first year or so, I was just, oh, just kind a of year. a geek. Because I was a geek yeah. at the time. I, I, was, I wasn't a player by any measure. I was just a, you know... Uh, low self esteem young lad yeah 
Okay. And, how, and so, how long into it, in, into your tenure there, did you, in, until you hooked up with a, had sex with a playmate? It was probably a couple years. Okay. I, it's hard to say because I, I made out with some playmates yeah. prior to that. I was always nervous. For a while, I was nervous about it. And also because of my self-esteem, no ma- playmates could come on to me really hard. And to my mind, they were just messing with me. Right. I couldn't accept it. To my mind, like, why on earth? But it's like Hef was, I think, obviously smart enough to know that he had his older friends up there and obviously some celebrities that would come and go. But it's not like he had many hunks he, I, I don't understand. Honestly, I don't understand why he had young men working as butlers, because it was the fox in the hen house. Clearly, right, right. a lot of them were gay, not for any reason other than you get a job there, you get your friend a job there, and then you get your other friend a job there. So there were like half of the butlers were gay. And I don't know if Hefner thought they all were, or if he just turned a blind eye to it, or that's if, why uh, he hired you. <laughs> but but it always was kind of curious to me that he would have the young guys up there that he did yeah. because we. We knew what we were doing. Um, so you wrote a screenplay about this, most of this story. Yeah. Um, but before we get to that, okay, just to, just to sort of finish the idea yeah. of the sort of things that my friend and I got away with or, or the things that we did. Yeah. We, we, we became pretty popular as, as these guys, Leland and Mark. We, we, my, my theory, my idea of it was, Let's be the best butlers here. Yeah. And that'll buy us a lot of goodwill so that we can have the freedom to fuck around here. My corollary was the surgeons and MASH, you know, because they were the absolute best at what they did. And when it came down to work, they were peerless. And that bought them a lot of room to, to fuck around and be right. lax. And that was my idea. Right. Like, let's be the best butlers in this house. And that way, you know, people will excuse or turn a blind eye to our other behavior. And it worked out that way. And we were, we, we, I think we had a certain amount of charm and, and both guests and girls and the other employees all kind of liked us. And those two guys, you know, Leland and Martha. Um, and at one point we used Hefner's name to get passes for the landing of this first space shuttle. The first space shuttle landed at Edwards Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. And using, I forget how, but somehow we used Hef's name, contacted NASA to say, could we get VIP passes to go to this thing? Got it. Which we did. So we went out, we did it. We were both fans of Hunter Thompson at the time. Wow. Fear and Loathing had just come out mm-hmm. a couple of years before. So our idea was the cool thing to do is to load yourself up with as many drugs as possible to do something like that so we did we piled on the drugs and we drove out to the desert and we went the vip area was much closer than where the regular people could watch and we were with the news crews and with people like steven spielberg and other celebrities like that out in the middle of the desert on this you know dry lake bed it was sort of like close encounters like all these people and all these cameras waiting for something interesting to come out of the sky and and at one point, Hef got tickets to the Super Bowl. Wait, so, sorry. Yeah. But Hef didn't go to this No, landing. no. We just used you his did, name and, and got the And you never got found out? No. Did it, did it uh, ha- land with a sonic boom? Oh, yeah. Two yeah. sonic really? boom. Boom, boom. Wow. Okay. That was very cool. And I'm sorry, it was a dry lake bed? Yeah. Not, not a... Ed, Edwards Air Edwards Force Air Base. Force Base. So runways are on a dry lake bed because they could, uh, some planes they don't know how long it'll take them to land yeah. oh. or, or to stop, and so they they have runways to go for miles. Wow. Okay. One year, Hef got tickets to the Super Bowl, 
and uh, we said, we'll And you never told this. him? We'll take this. <laughs> well, he wasn't about to go. He's right. not into that sort of thing. We were friends with his ver- his personal assistant, Mary O'Connor, his right-hand person. And we asked for the tickets. So we got tickets to the Super Bowl. Great ones, I'm sure. 50-yard line. We were like 10 seats up on the 50-yard wow. line. Again, we were blazed on acid. And <laughs> <laughs> we left at halftime because we couldn't handle it. You know? We had no interest in the game. Uh, but it was interesting to be part of it. We got it in the VIP suite and everything. But we, it was just all so intense. We said, okay, we've had enough of this. Wow. We got out of there. <laughs> Things like that. It, yeah. was, it, was, it was kind of a kick. So I wrote a script. You wrote a script. Yeah. You wrote a screenplay called The Mansion? It's called Mansion Nights. Mansion K-N-I-G-H-T. Okay. Yes. Oh, got it. It's about you and your buddy? buddy? Kind of. I did read it. But I read it a long time ago, so pardon me if I don't remember the details That's of it. That's okay. Well, I rewrote it again a couple of years ago. I, I first wrote, I decided, for years, I after I left the Playboy Mansion, I didn't talk about it much. I, I was determined to make it as a screenwriter, and mm. I didn't want to trade on that, on my past as a sure. Playboy butler. Well, when people found out that I was that I had that experience, they would always say, well, that's what you should write about. That's your screenplay there. And I never had the interest in any real interest in doing it for a couple of reasons. One, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to write a tell-all. I didn't want to tell on all mm, those people because right. they were my, they had been my friends, mm-hmm. and that wasn't my style. I had other fish to fry. I had other stories that I wanted to tell, and it didn't seem so extraordinary to me because I had lived it, and it was just my life. Right. In the way that kind of like I never went to college so to me the idea of college seems like a really interesting thing you get a dorm room and you're living with some stranger and you go to classes and you go to frat parties and stuff and people that went to college I was they went to college yeah because I didn't it seems like a really exceptional thing to do mm-hmm. and that for, that's the way I felt about the Playboy Mansion yeah it might sound interesting to you but you I forgot about the kid who was bringing friends up there to show them where it was, <laughs> yeah. literally staring at, yeah. the, at the, the, the rooftop from a block away. Yeah, and also there were many boring nights up there and many nights that out, nothing was going on, you know, out of five years. Yeah. Probably half the nights there wasn't anything really notable happening. That means that there's half the nights there was notable True. things. Yeah, That's yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but so I what, what days was it? was it? Was it five days? Five days. So was it was, were Friday and Saturdays? I worked Sunday to Thursday. Okay. Had Friday and Saturday off. Uh, and when I finally decided to write a script about it, I said, okay, I'm going to listen to all the voices. I'm going to do what I, everyone keeps telling me to do. I decided to sit down and write it a, an honest kind of coming-of-age account of my time at the Playboy Mansion, mm-hmm. starting out with me as a geek and, and so forth. And, and I, t- I wrote what I thought was a pretty good script, but it wasn't the sort of script that people – expect when they're getting a script about the Playboy Mansion. Mm. It wasn't like American Pie or American Graffiti or, or um, uh, Animal House. Mm-hmm. It was it was more kind of honest, emotionally honest, almost poignant story about right. this geek c- coming of age at the Playboy Mansion. And I had some... Which in- would play now. Huh? That's more now of kind of what things it's like... Possi- possibly. Yeah. But I... but I So I, 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 a couple of people showed a little bit of, bit of interest, but one of my major personality flaws is that I can write something and if five people go that's great that's awesome and then the sixth person goes nah I go I knew it I knew it wasn't any good damn it you know you're, I'm just, a, you're a writer surprise yeah, I'm just that's seeking it. proof that eh, just not that yeah. good and I'll put it away which I did and, and years later just a handful of years ago I, I, I totally rewrote it to be a lot more fun which I think it is now 
And again, I'm not sure what exactly I'm going to do with it. But When did you first write it? I first wrote it probably 10, 15 years ago, probably around the time I first met you. Like 20 plus years after you've been gone. Yeah. Um, from the mansion. Um, so I don't know if this is something you want to talk about, but I saw that someone had written a book about their years as a butler at the mansion. <laughs> Yeah, some douchebag came out with okay, the book. Okay, yeah, you, you do want to talk about it. Okay, good, I wasn't sure. <laughs> yeah, some guy, I forget, <laughs> Stefan something, he wrote a book, a tell-all about the Playboy Mansion, claiming that he was Hefner's valet. Uh-huh. Have you seen the book? I saw it, and I sent it to you. I, I think you had already heard of it, but when I saw it, I was like, this is, and then I said, yeah, go ahead. I don't remember the title, and I don't want to promote it anyway, yeah. but, and I had no interest because I didn't know it's the guy. It's a great read. <laughs> I didn't know the guy. Never mm-hmm. heard his name before. Don't have any memory. You of You know him. what years he? He was the exact years that I was here. Stop a, it. A, a period of the time. That I really? Was here. Not only that, he said he was Hess valet at the exact time that my best friend was Hess, actually Hess valet. Uh-huh. So we know this guy was full of shit. Now he, the book was full of details that he must have gotten from someplace, and and one of the one, well, isn't it possible that he was just there for a little? A short yeah, he period was. Of time? He was there for a little bit. Okay. I later learned that he worked a handful of parties, uh, and that's all. I, that's all. I, all I know. Okay. His wife worked there briefly, but the book is so full of shit; it's laughable. Like on almost every, I started circling inaccuracies. Oh, okay. And almost every page is. This would never happen, and and this he it tells it and he tells his story in the first person, and he's there when Hef is having these intimate fights with his girlfriend. He's there when some celebrity is having brutal sex with, you know, somehow he's right on the edge of the bed when everything is happening, yeah. which is absolutely not the true. The, the thing is just full of inner in, inaccuracies and pure invention, and and it's it's very galling. But I, I don't really. What do you mean by that? Galling, yeah. That someone would more galling for my friend who was a who was actually the valet at the time. Like the audacity, so he's of, kind of usurping his yeah. story, telling a story that he alleges to be true when we know it wasn't true. The, the the audacity of lying that much, and and not only lying but telling a story that made everybody look so bad. All the girls up there came on to him every time he turned a corner. Some playmate was begging him to fucker you know every celebrity was offering him cocaine it was just it was absolute nonsense hmm. to so. someone who didn't know that that wasn't true and he went in and told this story to would it have been an interesting story would it have been like oh that's this sounds like a great book because it's yeah i mean have yeah. has been gone for a few years the mansion is not the mansion anymore new company came in playboy isn't what it was It'd be very Difficult, not impossible, but difficult to validate ninety percent of what he said. Yeah. <clears throat> well, anyone who t- wanted to take the time or put any research into it at all, we quickly learned that he was making shit up. Not only that, it's really poorly, poorly written and not proofread. It's full of typos. The formatting is all off. It's an ugly self-published thing. You know, it's just a oh, it's just a it big, was no, it's a, yeah, self-published. Well, Amazon. Or so, so as I said to you. I don't know if I said it on the phone in a text or in an email, but I was like, you have to write this book. Screenplays have to appeal. I think we had this discussion. You sell a screenplay to a person. You have to have one person that is blown away by it, and they have to buy it. If you 
So you have to appeal to that specific audience of, of literally an individual. Whereas if then that's the person who green lights it and pays right. the money for it and all this kind of stuff, champions it, whatever it is. Whereas if you write a book, there are millions of individuals that it could appeal to. True. And you could and and you could and you people could buy the book and be intrigued by the story and then you turn it into a screenplay and you're like I got it it's true Zane and I appreciate the uh, encouragement I will talk to you off lines about why I haven't embarked on that project to date it's not an interesting story but for various reasons People. I haven't mainly like no one's paying me to do it okay <laughs> you know I'm tired of writing. It's a, pretty, it's a pretty short one. Well, I'm tired of writing shit on spec. Yeah, but have you ever? Okay, but have you ever gone to a publisher and said, "I want to write this book"? Uh, no. Okay, then just write the treatment and go in and see if you can get it written. Okay, I got paid fifty grand to write a book, and um, look a, at me. A book. I'm a what? drunk. <laughs> I'll send you home with it. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, that was my like my 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 travelogue book which by the way I mean I want to write my next one but um, I just think that again there's so many publishers I wouldn't self-publish it you go out and you you tell this story I don't I don't know if you bring up the fact that that other guy's book I don't know if if it like it obviously it popped up somehow it popped up on my, my radar it popped up on your radar which I don't know if it popped up on yours or someone brought it to you but someone brought it to me okay but it popped up on mine to the point where I brought it to you so it was it was well, getting I out there. Was, I think he was interviewed on that A and E special. Okay. So oh, about public. the Playboy. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I think. I I just I just I just like I would love to read that book. Okay. The screenplay it's meant to be a ninety minute read. I appreciate that. Appreciate that. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll get it on, uh, probably not till morning, but I'll start on that. Okay. Let me know if I can. Be a sounding board. And you know what? You can promote it to literally hundreds of people on my podcast. <laughs> you come here and we'll, we'll read it. And I'll circle in. people. What's that? 130 people. 130 people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, All right. Good. Well, I'll be happy to do that. Are you, are you appeasing me? Are you appeasing yourself? Are you agreeing with? Are you going to do it for real? I, I don't know you as someone to just bullshit. Well, I do bush, bullshit quite a bit, yeah. actually. Are you bullshitting right now? Do you hear the coyotes? Yes and no. There's I an eagle, hear. and you hear a little chirpy. I don't. Know if, I don't think you're picking up on that. They're like, hip, 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 hip. so I don't know if you're really gonna write it, <laughs> or if you're just. Well, I'd like you're to. You're processing if, it. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I'd like to, and I've talked with my friend about collaborating on, on such a thing. It's know? it's such an interesting story that you came and and I wonder how close our last podcast was our our audio only podcast was to this but it was interesting enough that I was like I want to have you up here I could have a lot of celebrities and will on this show but they're not all going to have such an interesting story to tell and I think that people will and I think have enjoyed hearing this story and and I think people would much appreciate now this is a one hour version of it right your your book can get into all kinds of torrid details or whatever you want it to be 
and I think it'd be a, a fun. I, I I would read it. I would pay for. I would pay for it. I'm not going to. Well, there are endless details. Yeah. When you're talking about five years and all kinds of celebrities and all kinds of girls, I was there the night that Dorothy Stratton got killed. I got a phone call in the pantry, and some guy said, "I need to talk to half." Dorothy Stratton got killed. I said, "Fuck you," and hung up the phone. Who's Who's that? Dorothy Stratton. Yeah, sorry. The playmate that got killed. Yeah. Star 80. She was going out with Peter Bogdanovich. You don't know. She played Playmate of the Year? She was a Playmate of the Year. She had she was discovered by some sleaze bag in Vancouver, Canada, working in a Dairy Queen. And he was like this part-time pimp, promoter, rat-faced little fucker. And he brought her to L.A., got into the Playboy Mansion, tried to befriend Hef, and just hung on to Dorothy as his, you know, yeah. her coattails. And she became quickly popular because she had this quality about her. Um, and Paul Snyder, her husband her boyfriend who became her husband felt more and more separated from her and losing control of the he of, wasn't the pimp guy yeah he was the pimp yeah oh got it he was losing control yeah. of his meal ticket yeah and she finally left him and it drove him crazy and she ended up uh, dating Peter Bogdanovich which drove me even crazier and he said okay if you want to break up fine but you got to come over one more time we just need to talk this out she went over to his house in West L.A. But what? I was there the night that the phone call came into the mansion that Dorothy Stratton got killed. Wow. And that was fascinating because, as I said, I hung up on whoever called, thinking yeah. it was a prank call. Right. And they called back and said, no, this is the private eye oh. that Paul Snyder hired to spy on Dorothy, and he's, they're both dead. So I put the call through the Hefner. And, and there were five or six playmates in the house at the time, and they found out, and of course they all, you know, just, uh, they were shattered by it because... Because y'all knew Dorothy, number one, but number two, Some they person. all were too familiar with the situation. Because yeah. almost every playmate up there had some guy in their past, some boyfriend back home that they left that came to L.A., mm -hmm. or some guy they met in L.A. but didn't want to be involved with anymore, and they would hide at the mansion. The, the mansion telephone in the pantry often was festooned with notes saying, if anyone calls for Jill, she's not here. Wow. If Tony calls for Debbie, let her know before you put it through. If so-and-so calls for Amy... You know, she's wow. left this. So they, so the girls knew a lot about jealousy and about jealous boyfriends and about controlling boys and stuff. So that hit very close to home. Yeah. So they cried and they cried and cried. And I brought brought out the champagne and they all started drinking champagne to, to, to calm down. And I remember clearly by like five or six in the morning, they were in, all in the dining room drinking champagne and just laughing it up, not callously, yeah. but they had just in not denial of it. Yeah. You know, they were just uh, had drunken themselves out of the the terror of the situation. See, it's not only your the fact that you were actually there for five years, it's also the fact that you're a very, very talented writer and a great storyteller. And so what you could do with the stuff that actually happened, you have a very interesting subject matter that you have a very good ability to turn into... Yeah, well, I, I always, I, at the time when I was there, I observed everything very carefully because I was learning. And I was a young guy, mm -hmm. both as a writer and just as a study of human nature. And it was also new to me. I was meeting a, a kind of person that I, a, a type of people that I hadn't met before. I was exposed to lots and lots of very beautiful young women. So I was really interested in finding meaning in all of that, yeah. you know. So I was paying attention. And... And, uh, and and that's why I have such good memories of it, is that almost everything that happened, I tried to extract some 
salient point out of her, some some meaning. You know, mm-hmm. I, I also I was I was coming of age. I was trying to, um, I was determined to become cool because there's a lot of cool people out yeah. there, and I was the antithesis of cool. And I was trying to figure out what is it to be cool. Is it cool to be, you know, unaffected by things? Is it cool to know everything? Is it cool to what is? Is it cool to be into it? Is it yeah. cool to be out of it? Yeah. yeah, right. As an example, as a paradox, I thought to be cool was to be like just blasé about everything, you mm-hmm. know, get excited. But my friend Mark, he was a guy. He was a very cool guy and a, and a very, very likable on the ball guy, and did very well with the ladies out there. He had a lot of enthusiasm about everything. In contrast, so I thought, well, that's kind of cool. Yeah. He gets really excited about stuff. But I was always trying to figure out, you know, how to be, how to be in this world, how to be successful like they are, how to act when you are successful. There was a guy, there was a, one butler up there named Greg, this little Italian guy with long, dark hair and a big Chuck Negron mustache, Three Dog Night. Got it. Harry Reams mustache. And he was cool in the kind of way that I could never be. He was like, he was a tough little guy. I grew up in in Bronx and and had the slight New York accent. And he was kind of, he was a singer. And it was just, just you know, knock your block off if you looked at him the wrong way. But a nice guy and just cool. And I just thought he was so cool. And I wanted to try acid. I had never tried acid. And he sort of took me under his wing. He had no reason in the world to do this. But he said, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take you on your first acid trip. They said, we'll go to Vegas. I said, okay. Wow. And again, this was in the Hunter Thompson days, so I thought, well, that sounds interesting. So he said, yeah, we'll leave at midnight, come to my place. He says, live in Venice. So I packed a bag of some things. We'll go to Vegas and spend the night there. So I get to his house. I left, left my bag in the car. I go in his house. He's hanging out with a couple of friends, smoking a joint. And, uh, and I'm just sitting there thinking, I thought we were going to go to Vegas because he didn't show any signs yeah. of going to do anything. Yeah. I thought that I had this wrong. And then he finally says, well, are you ready to go? I said, yeah. Okay, and he gets up and he starts out to his pickup. He says goodbye to his friends, starts out to his pickup truck, and I follow him. And he goes, uh, did you bring a bag or anything? And he didn't have anything with him, so I thought, you don't bring a bag for an overnight in Vegas? What are you fucking, you know, <laughs> be cool, man. So you left your bag in your car. So I, so I said, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. So we get in his truck, and he's got a suitcase in the back. Oh, my God. <laughs> already. And by then it was too late. I didn't want to say, uh, wait, let me get my stuff. So I went to Vegas, you know, with nothing. So we're driving this pickup truck, and we drop acid about an hour or two outside of town. So, like, it's on a, maybe on a Sunday night at, you know, middle of the night. And we're driving through the desert. I think it might have been before there was a freeway. And he said, you want to drive for a while? And I said, sure. And I'm driving along this really thick fog. You can barely see the hood ornament. Just like really thick fog, but trippy, you know. And he's going, and I'm driving along, and he's going, you might want to slow down. And I look at the speedometer. I'm going like 105 miles <laughs> an wow. hour. No idea. So I slowed way down. And so we come into Vegas eventually, and the fog cleared. And I'd never been to Las Vegas before. And the acid is coming on. And then suddenly I'm seeing signs bigger than a sign could be. Like, no one would make a sign this yeah. big. That's, I don't know what the fuck this drug is doing to me, yeah. but this is crazy. And buildings shaped like, are you kidding me? And everything was just crazy. Seeing Vegas for the first time and being on acid for the first time, first time, no frame of reference right. for any of it. We went into some hotel, probably Caesars, and there was a lounge called Cleopatra's Barge or something. And the shape of it, at least part of it, was like the prow of a big barge. And I thought... 
they got a fucking ship in this building. And my friend went to do some, Greg went to do something, and there was a wall of, uh, an elevator bank with marble walls. And there used to be a toy you could buy. It was like an oval plastic disc that had two colors of sand in it, black and white. And when you turn it over, the black sand would sift through the mm-hmm. white sand, and then turn it back over, the white sand would sift through the black. It was kind of a cool thing. And I was looking at this marble wall, and I thought, that's what I'm seeing. I thought, well, this is Vegas. Of course they would. Maybe every half hour they turn this whole fucking wall down, you know, because it's white marble with black mm-hmm. marbling. And I'm just staring at the walls right here. I'm just staring, and I could hear the sand sifting down, you know. And I said, Greg, look at this. And he starts laughing at me. And, and we went into the j- casino, and he went to gamble. I don't think he took as much as I did. But he went and started playing blackjack and stuff, and I didn't know how to play any games or anything, so I just started wandering around, and then I lost him. And then it was like being a kid, losing your parents at Disneyland right. or something. I said, oh, my God, you know, I'm never going to get home. I lost Greg. And I'd freak out, and I'd search and search, and I'd finally find him, and then I'd wander off for a little bit, and I'd come back and, and lose him again. And I kept losing him, and it was freaking me out. And later he said, you know, it's, what's cool about you is I don't have to worry about you, man. You, yeah. You, you got it under control. <laughs> and, and we finally checked into the Tam O'Shanter Motel uh, later that afternoon. It was just December, and it was very cold in Vegas. We get in this little motel room, freezing cold, and the heater doesn't work. And we called the manager and said, can we get some heat? And the guy says, what do you get, get yourself a couple of fucking hookers if you want to warm up? So that was his answer to that. Hmm. And so we're sitting on the on our on the beds, and Greg said, "You want to smoke a joint?" And I was finally starting to come down. I starting starting to feel a little bit normal. He brought out a joint. He smoked a joint. And it kicked me right back up again. I just tripped out. I looked at Greg, and he was sitting on this patchwork uh, quilt, and it, he looked like it looked like a farmland, it looked like a farmland seen from a plane, mm-hmm. and he looked like a giant stuffed Greg. I can see the seams like of a stuffed animal, you know. And I thought it was so amusing. And I laid back down and for the next hour or so it was like years of therapy because in my head I was going through the my memory files. Mm-hmm. I could see drawings I had made when I was two years, three years old. I heard the sound of the washing machine next to my crib when I was an infant. I saw you know, all these memories of my dad yelling at me about something, you know, so just like going through. And it sort of made me realize that I was a product of all these experiences in my past. It was absolutely fascinating. I, I didn't want it to end. It was like just a key to every memory I'd, I'd ever had. I finally came down off of it, but that was my uh, Just a perfect example of, of the book that needs to be written. <laughs> all right. Um, when you write it. You'll come back and we'll we'll talk about it. Sure will. Okay. Well, thanks, Zane. Yeah, man. This is this is this is. I'm I'm glad we we did this in in person. Cool. Me too. Cheers. Don't meet too many at the end of my show. Cheers, brother.